Good morning. My name is Tony. Please stand, if able, for the reading of God's Word. It's my privilege to continue worship with the reading of God's Word from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tony. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you and be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you're not already there, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've been in the book of 1 Timothy for some uh, number of weeks now, and having last week given the women of the church a call in 1 Timothy 2 to be adorned in good works, to literally dress up, or rather figuratively, to dress up the gospel with the beauty of right living and behavior in their lives, Paul now turns his attention to the men of the church, and in particular those who are to call to be elders and pastors of the church. He addresses the qualifications of those who are called to lead the church of God on earth. And as we come to a text this morning that is a challenging one, not challenging in terms of difficult to understand, but if I can be honest with you, just challenging for me as I read it, reading these qualifications once again and looking them over and trying to search out my own heart and and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to me, I'll admit to you that it was a challenging week for me. It was one of those one of those weeks where, where the gospel light begins to, sh- begins to shine on your own light, life in such a way that you want to ask questions and you want to you make sure that your approach and your thought process and your attitude is right. And, and, and one of the things that we've said from the beginning is that we work through the books of the Bible uh, expositionally and chronologically just so that we cannot avoid challenging topics, and that includes topics that are challenging to the heart and the life of the preacher. Because the New Testament is going to put a great deal of importance on establishing proper leadership. He doesn't spend a lot of time in this text, nor will we, talking about the particular responsibilities of the elder. We've talked about those things at length in other sermons, and we'll certainly address them again. But what he does is he lays out the actual expectations and qualifications for those who are called to be pastors and elders, and we use those terms interchangeably, to be pastors and elders within the local context. And it's revealing when you begin to look at Scripture as a whole and begin to explore all the pieces and places where it addresses the role and the position of elder, how often elders and deacons in particular come up in the New Testament conversation. It's interesting, but it's of course expected And the reason that Paul in this text spends so much time on this is because of the importance of what the pastor actually does. 
So Alexander Strauch, a theologian who wrote a book called Biblical Eldership, said it this way. The Bible says that an elder must be, irrepro- must be of irreproachable moral character and capable in the use of Scripture because he is God's steward, that is, God's household manager, according to Titus chapter 1. An elder is entrusted with God's dearest and most costly possessions, his children. He thus holds a position of solemn authority and trust. He acts on behalf of God's interests. No earthly monarch would dare think of hiring an immoral or incapable person to manage his estate. Nor would parents think of entrusting their children or family finances to an untrustworthy or incompetent person. So too, the high and holy one will not have an unfit, unqualified steward caring for his precious children. The reason that the Holy Spirit inspires these words of Paul and the reason that we read them today some 2,000 years later is because what's given in this text is particular instruction for the care of the church. Who are those who are actually qualified to care for and love and pastor and shepherd and guard and defend the holy flock of God, the beloved children of God, the, the those who are so precious to God that Jesus Christ himself shed his own blood for them. This is a high and holy calling. And often, as we hear those words, elder and pastor, those words bring with them all kinds of preconceived notions, some of them good and some of them bad. For some, our minds go immediately to the formal structure of an organization. So our mind jumps to the idea of a board made of CEOs and and business people. For some, they view the role of pastor or elder as a status for super-Christians, the varsity team. For others, when they hear the term elder or pastor, immediately their mind runs to a particular experience that was the source of heartache. They think of moral failings. They think of pastors and elders who used and abused their position for personal gain. But the Bible depicts elders as something very different. An elder is at heart a servant leader, a preacher of good news, an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, who's assigned with the task of defending the flock And God cares so much for his children that he has called some men to lead and be responsible for the church, even as all of us together seek to care for one another. It's an important responsibility and one that deserves attention and focus. And as such, the determination about who leads and pastors a church is vital to the success of the church's mission. So Strout continues, I I want you to listen to what he says. He says, since the local church is the pillar and support of the truth, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, its leaders must be rock-solid pillars of biblical doctrine or the house will crumble. Since the local church is also a small flock traveling over treacherous terrain that is infested with savage wolves, only those shepherds who know the way and see the wolves can lead the flock to its safe destination. Listen to this language. An elder then must be characterized by doctrinal integrity. And that doctrinal integrity means that there is a right interwovenness between one's doctrine and their right living. 
that what we believe and what we proclaim and what we declare as being the truth is actually something that has affected our own hearts and woven itself in such a way that there is a true integration between good and right doctrine and the right living to which the pastor is called. Now, some hearing this might immediately say, well, I came to church this morning and this has nothing to do with me. I don't have a desire to be a pastor. I don't have the gift to teach God's Word. I don't, I don't have any interest in ever being an elder, so none of this applies. But I would submit to you this, that aside from, aside from being able to teach, aside from that particular skill set, the principles that we see laid out in this passage are the hope of God for every believer. They may be required of the pastor elder, but they are the aim of every Christian. And if nothing else, if you are a Christian in this room, God has certainly called you to be a member of a church. And here Paul is giving us the standard to which elders are being held. Paul is giving you a list of qualifications to consider about those who are in leadership in the place where you belong to the church, whether that is here or elsewhere. This is important for all of us to understand. So for us in this very local context, the question becomes this, to what standard are Dave and myself and any other future elders going to be held? And that's exactly what Paul is going to give us beginning in verse 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, this is a proven truth. This is a truism. This is something that we know to be a reality. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the specific word here that is translated in our, in our Bibles, at least in the English Standard Version, as overseer comes from the Greek word episkopoi. It literally means a guardian, a church leader, an overseer. And this is one of several different words that is used for elders and pastors within the context of the New Testament. We have words like pastor and elder, of course. We have overseer here. We have other language that refers to pastors as shepherds or bishops. And I would argue that the Bible doesn't treat any of those uh, titles as distinct offices, but rather uses them all interchangeably to define different responsibilities within the role of the elder. And here's what he is saying to those that would be listening even today and to those that would read this word from 1 Timothy 3. Specifically, it's a call and a charge to the men of the congregation. And here's what he's saying. If you have an aspiration to be an elder, that is a right and good passion. It is not something to be embarrassed of or to be apologized for. If you feel as if God may have as if God may have called you to this, or as if this is something around which your heart is being stirred, if He's given you a passion for ministry, Paul's encouragement to you is to consider it and pray about it and explore it. And the first step that he's going to say on the road to becoming an elder is this. It's an internal recognition of and desire for God's calling on a man's life. Now notice what he's going to root all of this desire and calling in. He's not saying that this is primarily a function of having theological training or having a charismatic personality, though God may certainly choose to use those things. No, Paul is going to state in this text that the church is to value character over charisma, that the church is to value calling over credentials. 
And that's important because the value of our culture is to have a tendency, has a tendency to seep itself into the church. The way that the business world operates and the way that things uh, work out at your place of employment and all of those different attitudes have a tendency to seep into the mindset of the local church as well. And when that happens, churches tend to choose their leaders not based on the qualifications of the biblical standard of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but on the world's standard of perceived success. So they look to those who've been successful in business, those who are accomplished communicators, those who hold many degrees. And that attitude of church leadership is then validated in turn by church attendees who assess a church's effectiveness on the basis of their facilities or their resumes or the communication skills of a pastor. And that has led to a great deal of heartache and pain for God's people. Because when people, whether they be at this church or any other church, when people put more focus and attention and hope in the messenger than they do in the message, it begins to create a pride in the heart of the preacher. And eventually, it will create disillusionment on the part of the hearer. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, certainly that your hope for the gospel cannot be in me? It cannot be in Dave. It cannot be in whomever it is that God eventually calls to be other elders of this church. Our hope has to be exclusively in the message of the gospel. And whenever churches begin to elevate other extra-biblical standards or characteristics or traits over those laid out in Scripture. It is a recipe for disaster. And my guess is if we were to begin working our way around the room this morning and beginning to share the heartaches and the destruction and the damage that those in leadership within churches have created in your families and in your own personal life, we'd have enough stories to fill a book. All of that, understand, lays at the feet of those who claim to be elders and those who claim to be members within the local congregation. It's why it's so important that all of us understand these things. So let me just be clear for a minute because I don't want you to walk away with the wrong impression. I'm not diminishing success in the business world or communication skills or education or any of those things. Those are all inherently good and fine things. I'm simply saying this, that being an elder or a pastor must begin with having a God-given calling and motivation to pastor and care for the people of God. The model that we see laid out in Scripture is that the church is led by called and qualified men who are devoting themselves to the study of the Word, to devotion in prayer, and to following the Holy Spirit's leading as they interact with the local congregation. So elsewhere in Scripture, as the qualifications and responsibilities of elders are laid out, it's going to say things like this, those who are laboring in the preaching and teaching of God's Word deserve a place of honor, and it's going to describe the, quali- or rather the responsibilities of the elder as one who is devoted to the Word. But that is the responsibility of an elder, to be devoted to the Word in such a way that they are then able to communicate the truths of Scripture to the people of God. And to the extent that you have a desire to be a pastor, God is saying that you are desiring a good and noble task. But notice that he says it is a task. 
Paul is saying, don't seek the office for the sake of your standing. Seek the task for the sake of service. And those are two very different desires. Paul is insinuating here that pastoring is work and that in order to be a pastor, there needs to first be a desire for the work that goes along with it. So how do you know if this is something that God might actually have for you? Well, Charles Spurgeon quite famously had an answer for this. As he did about most things, it was winsome and wise. And so when young men aspiring to ministry would come to Pastor Spurgeon on on a Sunday morning after the service and they'd say, Pastor Spurgeon, I so appreciate your preaching and I so appreciate your ministry and I appreciate what you do. I I think God might be calling me to the ministry. What would your advice be for me? Spurgeon would reply by saying this, if you can do anything else, do it. And if you cannot, then preach. His heart was that one recognized whether or not God had placed that burning desire in them or whether there was some other motivation. And I would argue that the heart of Paul, at least on some level, resonates with the saying of Spurgeon. It's what Paul communicates in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 16, where he says this, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's saying there's nothing else I can do with my life. I have to do this. God's called me to this. He's given me the responsibility. It's something that he's, it's a desire that he's placed within me. How am I supposed to do anything else other than preach? This is what I'm called and equipped to do. But then notice the corollary later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 25. He says this, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's saying, so I minister because it's as if I have no other option. It's as if God has made it so clear in my life that this is what I'm to do that I I have no other option other than to be a pastor. But simultaneously, Paul says, I have to give attention to my heart and to my character lest upon preaching the grace of God, I myself miss it. And we're going to expound on that as we move on. So Paul lays out a heading for everything he's about to say. And here's what he says in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That language above reproach is a legal term. It literally means innocent in the eyes of the law. And here's what he's suggesting. In order to be a pastor, there is an expectation that your life is to be lived in such a way that no one could make a substantial and serious accusation about your character. And Paul's not suggesting that a pastor is going to be perfect. Let's just make that straight right up front. Now, the pastor is just as dependent on the grace of God as anybody. And he's actually in a position to teach and demonstrate his dependence on God to the people. Nor is Paul suggesting that 
false or trumped up accusations are never going to be made. He actually addresses that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But the suggestion of Paul here is this, where the pastor's life falls short of gospel expectations, a pastor is to be quick to repent and that his life is to be free from the sort of failures that would cause the name of Jesus to fall into ill repute. And this idea of being above reproach is a category heading for the particulars that Paul is going to lay out next. He begins by saying this, that this preacher is to be the husband of one wife. Now, there's two points of clarification here and then a brief explanation. Paul is not suggesting that an elder must be married. And we know that because it's Paul himself who actually wrote this text. If you recall, Paul was a single man. In fact, he refers to singleness, particularly within the context of ministry, as a gift. That there, is, there, there are some people who are specifically given the gift of singleness, and in such a gift, they are then able to exercise ministry to the fullest, just by virtue of not having the obligations of family, right? He's not diminishing marriage. He's not diminishing singleness. But what he is, so, so that's the first idea. He's not suggesting that the elder must be married. But secondly, he is not suggesting, I believe, that, that an elder must have never been divorced. And I realize that's a controversial statement. I realize even within this room, there may be different opinions on that. But let me just suggest it this way. There's li- little evidence scripturally for the idea that someone who is divorced may never be a pastor, And there is no explicit forbiddance on a divorcee becoming a pastor. But I will say this, it's an an idea that needs to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. That there are particular circumstances and particular issues that need to be fleshed out in order to understand whether or not somebody has disqualified themselves in ministry by virtue of their divorce. That's a whole other sermon for another day. But what I think Paul is suggesting here, and many of you have probably heard this language, is that a pastor is to literally be a one-woman man. That if the pastor is married, he is devoted to his wife. That only she has his heart and his eyes. And all you need to do is look around the church landscape a little bit to see all the brokenness that comes when pastors are not the husband of one wife, where they are not a one-woman man, but where their eyes and their hearts wander. That his marriage, to some extent or another, is to be an example of what a committed relationship between two Christian spouses is. And he continues... He actually gives us a big idea within these next four suggestions that all have a similar theme. He says that the pastor is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. And all of those ideas have have a common theme, that the elder is to be reasonable and honorable. And the reason that I use those particular words is because of what's suggested here. Look what he says first. He's to be sober-minded. Now, he is not suggesting that pastors have to be stoic or that that pastors always have to be somber or that they can never laugh or goof around. But what he's saying is this, that in his mindset, in his approach, particularly as it relates relates rather to the flock of God, he is to be clear thinking, clear-minded. He continues and says that he's to be self-controlled. He's not to be given over to his passions. 
He says he's to be respectable. That's talking about his actual reputation among the church in this particular case, that the church knows this man and that they know him to be one who is actually worthy of respect by virtue of his lifestyle and his faith. And finally, he is to be hospitable. Now, when we think about hospitality, we typically think about opening up your home to other people, maybe having other believers over to your home for lunch. All of those things certainly would fall under the broad category of what hospitality is. But here in this text, as Paul says that the pastor is to be hospitable, he's suggesting that the pastor is wired in such a way and is pursuing relationships in such a way that he is consistently interacting with the lost. That a pastor cannot be the kind of person who is only interacting with other believers. That there needs to be some sort of evangelistic mindset that he has. That there is a hospitality in his interaction with his neighbors. Does he count among his friends those who don't know Jesus? Is his life geared to know and love the lost? Then we come across one of the big qualifications. Paul says that the pastor is to be able to teach, or your translation might say apt to teach. That there is a God-given aptitude for taking the Word of God and studying it and applying it and being able to explain what it says to other people. Now, let's just be clear about what that means. This is not talking exclusively about one's ability to hold the attention of a crowd. There are all kinds of self-proclaimed pastors who can entertain a crowd but have no business being behind a pulpit because they are not actually teachers of God's Word. The teaching of God's Word is the operative idea in what it means to be able to teach. So there may be some who distribute good advice or make people laugh with their wit, but they have either no ability or no desire to communicate the truth of the Bible itself. No, Paul here is talking about the ability to teach the living Word of God. That there is a high and holy standard given to us in the Word that the pastor is called to observe and declare. The pastor is called to communicate what Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Anglican preacher, referred to as logic on fire. And I love that description of preaching and teaching, that in the pastor's declaration of the truth, he is building a logical case for the listener. In other words, you ought to be able to follow a particular line of thought. There ought to be a logical argument made for the things that we see laid out in Scripture, that he isn't just meandering, that he's not simply manipulating emotions to try to get a response, but that there is a provable through line in his proclamation. But Lloyd-Jones didn't end by saying that he is to be logical. He says it is to be logic on fire. It means that the truth that the pastor declares is to be alive with the power of the gospel. Because he is depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to enliven hearts and illuminate minds, his teaching grips the soul as well as the intellect. Now, I don't think that this text in any way indicates that every elder ought to be able to hold the attention of a congregation for 40 minutes. This elder may do it within the context of a Sunday morning. He may do it within the context of a smaller group. But here's the big idea. The elder is to be someone who can expose false doctrine, 
espouse sound doctrine, and explain faith. And all three of those are necessary ideas. That your responsibility doesn't just end with declaring truth, it also also includes combating falsehood. And if you remember the context of the book of 1 Timothy, that's exactly what Paul is doing in this letter. He's revealing truth for the sake of correcting error. And here's why all of this matters. We've got to keep this in mind consistently because the ultimate and final authority in the church belongs to King Jesus. And the way that we know our king and the way that we know our calling and the way that we know what is right and acceptable for living is through the perfect and inerrant pages of Scripture. The pastor's authority does not lie within himself and it does not lie within his role. It lies within the Word of God, and His authority extends to the extent that the Bible gives Him authority and no further. See, the pastor, the elder, is the under-shepherd who stewards what belongs to the great shepherd. And all day we've been singing and talking and reading and confessing together the idea that God is, in fact, the great shepherd. That the role of the elder or the pastor is to properly steward what belongs to God. And in order to steward God's people well, he must first steward God's word well. So we continue, verse 3. These are all of a piece as well. He is not to be a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Again, there's a theme to these ideas. These are all outward-facing indications of an inward lack of self-control. Outward-facing indications of an inward lack of self-control. So he begins by saying this, that the pastor is not to be a drunkard, or some of your translations maybe say he is not given to drunkenness. And this this indication is exactly what it sounds like, that the elder is to be one who does not drink to excess, that he is not given over to alcohol in a way that he loses his discernment and by so doing makes himself a fool. I would argue that this is not a mandate that the pastor must abstain from alcohol. It is a mandate that they are not to be controlled by it. And I would make that argument from 1 Timothy 5 in particular. The principle here, though, is this. The pastor elder is to be someone who is free from life-controlling addictions. The second piece that's connected to that idea, he is not to be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. This is not someone who is always looking to major on the minors and nitpick and create issues where there ought not be issues. He is not to be someone who is spoiling for a fight and looking for an argument. He is not to be authoritarian. He is not to be a bully, but he is to be gentle. Not a lover of money. A pastor is not to be a man who is greedy and pursuing financial gain, but he's to be marked by a generosity and that he's to be marked by a sense of temperance when it comes to his approach to finances. And I think we find another indication of what Paul is suggesting here in Ephesians 5, verse 18, and here's what he says in that passage, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And here's the big suggestion behind all of these ideas in 1 Timothy 3 as well as in Ephesians chapter 5. If you are controlled by something, anything other than the Spirit, be it alcohol or money or your temper, you are going to be drawn into reckless, debaucherous living. He continues in verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I'll admit to you right up front, this is one that struck me, mainly because I grew up in a pastor's home. And I've heard some of the ideas around this text, I think, abused and misused. And so my heart in explaining of all this, with, with that caveat on the table that this is my own experience out of which I'm speaking, my heart in explaining this is that you would get a picture into what I think Paul is making the argument for in this text. And here's what he says. If this man cannot lead his own family, if he cannot serve his family well, if he cannot care for his own family, how can he lead, serve, or care for the church? Now that argument makes all kinds of sense. It's an easy application one to another. He is saying that it is a fair and right expectation that the pastor properly love and lead his family and that his family recognize his position within the context of the home. And notice how he defines those things. He says it two ways. First, he is to manage his own household well. That his own family life and his own personal life and his own finances and his own, the structure of everything that he's doing is not to be marked by chaos or disrepute. That there is a sense of order. There is a sense of structure. And secondly, that he is keeping his children submissive. That his family is operating properly under his loving authority that he has enough regard and authority within his own house that his children, whether or not they have become believers, respect his role in their lives. Now, as an important aside, what all of this necessitates is that a pastor has a proper balance between ministry and family. And that balance is often precarious for pastors. There is an inherent temptation for pastors to overperform. And what I mean is to try to do more than they ought to do. So some men overperform in their role as a pastor out of a noble but misguided desire to help others too much. And so, with all the good intentions of the world, they make themselves readily available to the needs of everyone, but they do that at the cost of time and attention to their families. For decades, there was a cliche in Bible colleges and seminaries that taught pastors, if you take care of the church, God will take care of your family. Now, that sounds noble on its face, but it is a lie that Satan has used to destroy families and, by extension, the reputation of the church. And the obvious dysfunction in that ideology is that God's means of caring for your family is that man himself. And you cannot remove him from involvement within the context of his home and expect the family to continue to operate. Other men overperform for wholly different reasons. They overperform in their role as a pastor because their ministry has become inherently a means of religious pursuit. Ministry has become their offering to God. 
And they presume that by virtue of their ministry and by virtue of their role and their function, they are now made acceptable before God. And of course, the dysfunction of that ideology is that a pastor could stand behind a pulpit week by week and declare the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the wonder of a holy and loving and good God and then leave that place thinking, and I have made myself acceptable to that God by virtue of what I've done, which takes no grace at all and is an affront to God's character. And I say that as someone who certainly at moments has struggled with that ideology myself. Ministry in that case becomes an inherent idol. And that's a strong temptation for pastors. So the pastor must rest his identity in the idea that he is an accepted and beloved son of God. And so the order of priority for a pastor is that he, one, must first attend his own spiritual life. That he is in the Word, that he's talking to his Heavenly Father, that he's taking moments of rest and stillness, that, he's, that he is attending his own soul well, as anyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ ought. Second, that he engages deeply and diligently with his wife and his children. And third, that he cares for and shepherds the flock of God well. And if any of those priorities are shuffled, the pastor's soul is damaged, the pastor's family is damaged, the church is damaged, and the name of Jesus is hurt. And as a reminder, believer, especially fathers, God has given you the same responsibility to understand that you are first a son or a daughter of God, that you are second responsible to engage with your family well if you're married or if you're single, to engage well with the people whom God has placed around you as sources of encouragement and opportunities for ministry and friendship, and third, that he has called you to your career and your occupation, be that inside or outside of the home. And far too many pastor's kids, speaking from experience, have become casualties of their father's desire to overperform, and God is not glorified in that. So like every husband, a pastor needs to have date nights with his wife, he needs to go to his kids' games, he needs to have the right and proper boundaries, his home ought to be one that is filled with fun and joy, as well as training and discipline in the Lord. Why? Because his family is his first and most important ministry. And if he does not do those things well, he will not be able to lead the church well. Verse 6, He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's been a spate of illustrations, particularly over the last 20, 30 years in in the internet era of men who were incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, incredibly organizationally minded in such a way that they were able to build massive churches with massive influence, with massive listenership. And in several of those cases, what you had was guys who were incredibly talented but became pastors far too early. They got caught up 
in the attractiveness of the responsibility caught up in and maybe the perceived glamour of being able to stand in front of a large room of people and declare things. And ultimately, their hearts were drawn away by their own successes and drawn away by the constant temptations that lay within and outside of the church. And Paul's instruction here to Timothy, this young pastor, is this. The elder must not be a recent convert. He needs that time to grow. He needs that time to prove himself, to be observed, to be affirmed in his calling and giftedness. Later, Paul is going to say something similar, which is the idea that the church ought to be slow in the laying on of hands for elders. That there is no rush in these things. But that we ought to be mindful of the heart and soul of the elder, as well as what that elder's role would be within the context of the church. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So if someone outside of the church, a neighbor or a co-worker would find out that you were just talking to your pastor and they happened to know him, they wouldn't go, he's a pastor? That guy? Are you serious? You wouldn't believe the things I've seen that guy do. You wouldn't believe the mouth that's on him. You wouldn't believe the things that he participates in. There ought not to be a shock even in the eyes of a non-believing world, when they find out that a pastor is a pastor. And the idea behind that is that Paul does not want the reputation of the church and the reputation ultimately of Jesus to be damaged by the abuse perpetrated by a pastor who ought not be a pastor. I understand that what Paul is describing in this text here is not a super-Christian. It's not the varsity squad. Aside from the ability to teach, these things ought to be the markers of all Christians. But it is a prerequisite for an elder. So why does all of this matter? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Peter writes it this way, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So why do we care about all of this? For the sake of the chief shepherd who gave himself for the people. The goal of the elder, the under-shepherd, is to lead and protect and feed the congregation so that they may better know the chief shepherd. And that through the example of local church pastors, the people might say with the psalmist as we sang today, the Lord is my shepherd. That their eyes and their attention and their focus and their wonder would not be directed at any man, but at Jesus Christ himself, who is worthy of all glory and praise and wonder and honor. It's a great calling, and it's a serious calling. And it's one that we as a church want to take seriously. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the way that this book consistently challenges our presumptions. 
the way that it forces us to take stock of our own heart, of our thinking and our mindset and our attitude and our behavior. And God, I pray that it would convict us and challenge us and encourage us and build us up. God, we would pray that you would raise up those who you might have to be elders and pastors. We pray that you would raise, raise us up in unity around the chief shepherd, that our purpose and our goal would be to make much of you, and that, God, we may be an example to lead people to you, that people would get some sense, as limited and as shattered as it might be, of who the chief shepherd is just by looking at the under-shepherds. So, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love your sheep, that you protect your sheep, and that you give your church these servants to lead, guard, protect, and guide it. So be gracious to us and protect us. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.